Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Historic bridges are physical structures that tell a story from the past. The suspension bridge over the Ohio River connecting Cincinnati and Covington, Kentucky, is a well-renowned bridge that was built from 1856 through 1866 by John A. Roebling. This suspension bridge and its architecture is like the Brooklyn Bridge, attracting tourists and strengthening a sense of community. Bridges have a way of making an impact in not only communities, but also through economics, transportation, and beautification, and serve as a connection to career and educational opportunities. Ohio's Department of Transportation understands the importance of preserving, relocating, or restoring these bridges while complying with laws and regulations. The state of Ohio has over 500 national registered listed historic bridges with a vast variety of iron, steel, stone, concrete, and wooden structures, many of which are Ohio Bridge Award recipients. Most recently, Ohio DOT completed a historic bridge inventory update for all 9,086 bridges built between 1961 and 1975. Seven were determined to be eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, and one is considered an early example of environmentally sensitive design. Joining us today from Ohio DOT is Erica Schneider, Assistant Environmental Administrator for ODOT, and Tom Barrett, ODOT's Historic Bridge Program Manager to speak on Ohio's Historic Bridge Inventory, Evaluation, and Preservation Plan, and how DOTs may implement these findings in their states. Erica, Tom, welcome to AASHTO's ETAP Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, we're going to be talking about Ohio DOT's historic bridges. And a state like Ohio, you have quite a few historic bridges that are around the state. I mentioned in the uh, introduction, something along the lines of over 500 that are on the national registered list. Tell us a little bit about what your jobs are and how a bridge qualifies as being a historic structure, if you would, please. My job is I am an assistant administrator in our office and I oversee our cultural resources section. And part of that is our historic architecture section. And included within that is our historic bridges. Tom is our historic bridge manager and he is the expert in Ohio when it comes to historic bridges. So I will turn it over to him to expound on that question. Like Erica said, I manage the historic bridge inventory here at ODOT. My predecessors started the uh, inventory in the 80s, like 1981 was our first inventory. We have just over 500 historic National Register eligible or listed structures, about 140, I think we're like at 142 on covered bridges. So we're like third in the country on covered bridges, just behind Pennsylvania and Vermont, I think. Something that's unique about Ohio is we have a collection of early wrought iron trusses pin connected through and pony trusses from the wrought iron bridge company. So we do have a little bit more of a collection of those here, which is unique to Ohio. I guess really what makes them historic, we're really talking about National Register Criterion C and the uniqueness of the structure, a lot of early examples throughout the state and materials 
and design. That's pretty much what we have here in our in our inventory. Once a bridge goes onto the historic register, what are the implications of that? Are there limits to how you can physically change the bridge? Are there other things that you have to consider as you maintain that bridge? Yeah, we try to follow the AASHTO guidelines, their rehabilitation guidelines that have been established. Also, the Secretary of the Interior's standards for the treatment of historic structures applied to bridges. First thing we ask for when we're having any kind of undertaking or project that affects a historic structure is to try to retain as much of the original fabric as we can, try to keep them open to traffic so they'll get that maintenance and attention and uh, annual inspection that they require. We try to encourage, you know, annual maintenance, cleanup, brush removal, things of that nature in the meantime, once we do have a rehabilitated structure. We try to be stewards of our bridges and we try to help our local public agencies with their bridges that are historic. And Tom does a really good job of helping them look for funding and look for um, grants and other opportunities so that they can find ways to preserve their bridges instead of having to replace them so that we can keep our historic bridges. So that's one of our goals. And we work a lot with our State Historic Preservation Office and other entities around our state to do that. Erica, you talked about finding funding for this, grants and such. Where does the funding for the maintenance and rehabilitation of these structures typically come from? Is it a variety of sources? Yes, it is. If there are bridges at ODOT, we have a variety of different sources for maintenance for bridges. If it's funding that we're trying to help locals find, there are transportation funds, the Transportation Alternative Program funding, which is one of the federal programs. It can apply to many, many different things, but historic bridge work is one of those programs. But Tom knows of other programs that provide that funding. Primarily, when we have a structure that's eligible or listed on the National Register and we go into a project or we know that there's a plan for that structure, whether it needs a lot of work and we're trying to figure out how to program it at the local or state level, I'm a real advocate of the Transportation Alternatives Program, especially through ODOT's local programs, because they've been able to find a 95% match for these projects. The owners only need to come up with 5%, and we've been fairly successful in doing that and marketing that program. We try to do it annually in our Historic Bridge Awards with the County Engineers Association, so they know that this funding is available and We try to let them know what structures are in their counties, township, municipalities that qualify for this because they might not be aware and just go straight into a a replacement or some other type of project or a bypass, not knowing that these structures qualify for a 95% federal match. We talked about that inventory that you've been involved with in terms of identifying these bridges. Is that strictly something Ohio DOT does, or do you get nominations, so to speak, from local officials and such to say, hey, this bridge here has some historical significance? Most of the structures in our inventory have been identified either through a National Register nomination, a significant structure that's in a city such as Cleveland or Cincinnati. A lot of those were already listed by the 
mid 80s, but most of the structures in our inventory were identified through our statewide queries on types of structures and the historic types that are trusses and arches, stone, concrete, wrought iron, metal. But there are those instances, like you said, where groups that we try to stay in contact with, like the historicbridges.org, where partners with the Ohio Historic Bridge Association, sometimes they've brought it to our attention that there's a unique feature on, say, a, a trust that we originally inventoried as not significant or not meeting the National Register criteria, it might have a unique feature that they're able to point out or a builder or patent or design. And we'll take another look at it and work with our State Historic Preservation Office and put a reevaluation letter together with the Historic Preservation Office and keep the Ohio Historic Bridge Association in the loop on that as well. So we call it new information. And so a bridge that was even determined not eligible at one point, we can reevaluate it again for the National Register at any time. It's a dynamic inventory that can change and we can add bridges. And often we do track the bridges that we've added annually and report that to SHPO and FHWA. One of the historic crossings in Ohio is the Little Miami River Bridge. Tell us a bit, if you would, please, about that structure and its impact on environmental design. That was a 1971 project that the district, District 8, notified us about that. It was 1971, so it was pretty early for those aesthetics in keeping the original stone arch that the neighbors wanted to see. So they wanted to have that setting and feeling at that crossing, but I think there are a few issues there. They were going to replace it, and they ended up doing a hidden box beam, clear span, above that arch structure. So that is a an early example that we know about. Probably the earliest example is an aesthetic design and a uh, solution to what the locals were wanting for the aesthetics on their historic bridge and retaining that setting. Not even knowing about that one prior to this 1960s study. We've done a few hidden arches and clear spans throughout the state, like we've done a concrete arch inside the stone uh, structure at the Blaine Bridge, the Stone Arch at Blaine in Belmont County, which is a national road. And it was our bicentennial bridge here in Ohio. So that one does have a hidden concrete arch in it. And right now, within the last few weeks, we did a clear span over a stone aqueduct. I think it's a three-span stone aqueduct built in the 1830s in Newark, Ohio. The U.S. Bridge is putting one of their Patriot trusses, which is similar to a Bailey Bridge, so it'll be temporary and only touch down on the approaches and not affect the structure under it, and that's temporary for a bypass. So why that former bridge, which initially was an aqueduct, then it became an interurban line, and then it was later a roadway, and now we're bypassing it. But in the meantime, we're going to do that clear span over it. So we're still doing this and even on a larger scale. It was interesting. We were already doing a project down there for a road that was going to bypass that bridge because being built in the 1830s as part of a canal system, um, it really wasn't meant to be a major road with heavy trucks going across it constantly, which is what it had become. 
So we were already working on a project and it got to the point where they had to close the bridge because it just couldn't handle that traffic anymore. And it caused a major issue with the traffic network around there. So that's why they put this temporary bridge over the top of it to span it. So it protected the bridge so that that traffic's no longer touching down on it, but it allowed them to keep the road open so the traffic could still flow freely through there. So um, until we can get our road built around there. So it's, it's actually pretty neat. I mentioned in the introduction about the uh, survey or inventory that you did of bridges built between 1961 and 1975. And out of those 9,000 plus bridges that were inventoried, seven were determined to be eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. Looking at something like that, that doesn't seem all that old to me because I was pretty alive when all of those bridges were built. Are there different considerations? Are there different things that it may not look as obvious that this is a historic structure because it's relatively new versus something that's wrought iron or built with sandstone and, and such that obviously has the look of being a, a historic structure. You're right. A lot of the, some of these structures would not be obvious from this era. The anomalies that, you know, jumped out from the initial queries that we ran with our crack team of interns here in the Office of Environmental Services when we started to embark and think about this era. Skew, skew's a big one. Curved steel beams, that's one. A lot of computer-calculated designs. Integral abutments is probably something that the average person wouldn't jump out to them, um, where the beams and the abutments are one integral design and component. Different materials. When you're crossing over, you're talking really about a substructure, and the landscape probably looks like any other highway or interstate landscape. So yeah, it's a pretty unique era to try to tease some of the National Register criteria out of. And so, yeah, that was unique experience for this time period. When you're building something new these days, I would imagine probably the people that were involved with building some of these bridges, whether they go back to the 1800s or more recently to the 1970s and 60s, perhaps did not consider them as future historic sites. As you're designing new crossings, does that cross your mind at all that 25, 50 years from now, this might be an historic bridge? It does for me more recently. One of our more important modern crossings is Vrooman Road, where we had input from the tribes on the concrete relief, the images that we used in the uh, concrete forms on the uh, piers and abutments and railings. And so I think that's probably one that would stand out in the future from everything that's gone into it. Yeah, that's a good example, Tom. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a high-level river crossing that just finished construction a couple of years ago, but it's up in northeastern Ohio, and it's a massive bridge. I could see it becoming historic in the future because of the work that went into it, because of the consultation that went into it with our tribal partners. It has uh, designs on the bridge and elements on the bridge that were designed by our tribal partners that have um, educational meanings that tie to some kiosks in a park nearby that explain what they mean. And it was the first of that kind that we've done in Ohio. Yeah, there's probably a few maybe future historic bridges that come to mind. We did a replica concrete rainbow arch as mitigation 
and it was a full-on new concrete rainbow arch structure built off of the original 1930s plans and that's in Knox County and that was a mitigation but that's pretty big mitigation item you know to replicate the bridge verbatim with the original plans another one that comes to mind for a local context on our Welsh scenic byway in southern Ohio there was a the replication of a ball relief from a local theater that they stamped into the or they did a concrete form liner for that on a bridge nearby so they use those relief forms from the interior of a theater which is pretty cool whether you're talking about new construction or restoration of an older bridge, what kind of environmental impacts do you have to consider? I only have to consider one, and that's Section 106. But yeah, our office, we do the whole NEPA, and we have NEPA assignment from FHWA. So our staff within OES has all of the Army Corps permit folks. So we're looking at Corps permits if we're out of the ordinary high water mark. We're looking at stream mitigation, muscle relocation at some of these locations. And then obviously when we look at the footprint of a bridge project, we're looking at all four quadrants there. So there might be a farm complex from the 19th century that we need to consider any of those adjacent properties above ground. And then we also have our archeological staff for the archeological part of our 106. Yeah, for any project we do that has federal funds, we have to look at all, all of those environmental impacts. And we work with our district offices and our local public agencies to make sure that the environmental documents are completed for that and all the environmental resources, the impacts are considered for those. And if there's any impacts, that those are um, minimized and mitigated if necessary. Ohio DOT was something of a pioneer when it comes to meeting the federal requirements for bridge evaluations. Tell us if you would a little bit more about that and how your work may be implemented by other state DOTs. We know that our first inventory around 1981 was might have been one of the first DOT inventories. We had a historic bridge inventory form with the SHPO that kind of preceded that into the 70s. But by 1981, we had established our own historic bridge inventory form for the Ohio DOT. We completed that. And over the years, we've done a 1990 update. And then in 1994, we did a concrete arch supplement to that. One of the things we accomplished in 2004 was we did the context for the interstate highway system. And within that study, we did uh, an inventory of the 1950s bridges. So we looked at a lot of early pre-stressed concrete structures for that. But by the time we got to the early 2000s, we realized that 1981 inventory and some of the ways we were looking at those early spans, we had elevated, you know, if something was multi-span, there was a scoring system from this early inventory that we are dealing with the legacy of that. And it was pretty accurate when you applied the National Register. But what we were left with was kind of the attrition of some of these structures being replaced and taking a look at some of the more common types like T-beams and things where we found that, hey, we might have some early examples of T-beams and slabs and through girders and things like that that we never considered before. So when 
the 50 most common bridge types document came out and I think it was 2004 or 2008, we decided to look at some of the structures we hadn't looked at before. And so that became our, what we call the 2010 update, where we uh, contracted with a consulting firm and looked at some of the structures like slabs, T-beams, girders, and found that some of these structures were pretty early, even on a national level. We found a T-beam in Belmont County that was built in the 1890s, um, and it was on Cement Bridge Road of all places. And that's kind of the full legacy of our inventory leading up to our 1960s bridge study, which we had that opportunity to go back and look at things we didn't look at before and bring them forward and reevaluate some of the structures that did not meet the National Register when we look at them before. And then knowing everything that we know now and researching the different patents and connections, some of those trusses became eligible in our inventory. And then approaching the 1960s and that threshold for 50 years, that's kind of where we ended up now, where we looked at the study population for our most recent inventory here in 2022 and just finished that last year and finalized it in 2023. So that's from 1981 to 2022. It's been quite a journey and I've been here for (laughs) half of it. (laughs) Well, it certainly sounds like you have your work cut out for you in terms of all the bridges that you have to keep track of and not just those that are already on the National Historic Register, but those that may someday be on the National Historic Register. We've been talking on this episode of Ashto's ETAP podcast with Erica Schneider. She is the Assistant Environmental Administrator for Ohio DOT, and Tom Barrett, the Historic Bridge Manager for Ohio DOT. Tom, Erica, thanks so much for being my guest on Ashto's ETAP podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us.